Okay, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I'm going to read from the Sirhan Sirhan timeline. I interviewed Jim Garrison Keeler about this cool, great article that he put together, and it's really just focuses on Sirhan Sirhan. There's been three books, really notable books, about the RFK assassination. I've interviewed two of the authors. One is Lisa B. Peace, P-E-A-S-E. And the other is Tim Tate, T-A-T-E. And they're both great books. They both cover Sirhan, a couple chapters on Sirhan. The third book is The Assassination of Robert F. Kennedy, The Conspiracy and Cover-Up by William Turner and John Christian, Christian with the foreword by Oliver Stone. <clears throat> and uh, this paper that's an open source paper, you can actually go find it on Jim Garrison Keeler's Twitter timeline. I think it's at the top there, 50 pages. So it'll take me three hour, one hour episodes to kind of read through the whole thing. But it's really interesting. It has stuff that I don't recall reading about the Amorque, um, which is the American Rosicrucian Society. And I do, I actually grew up in Northern California where the headquarters are in San Jose. It has a full city block. It's full of kind of esoteric regalia, a lot of Egyptological influence. But also their bookstore, you can get kind of... Uh, some of the like kind of famous books like uh, Manly Palmer Hall's, uh, what's it called? I can't remember the title of it, but it's like his magnum opus about the occult. Uh, is it the Secret of All Ages, uh, Secret Teachings of All Ages, if I remember correctly. But that ties into Sirhan Sirhan and ties into the lead up to the death of Robert F. Kennedy in 1968. And um, it's just one of those assassinations. There's uh, there's a documentary that came out that says Four Tried and covers JFK, RFK, Martin Luther King, and Malcolm X. But uh, people are still trying to get to the bottom of it. And there's a lot more involved with Sirhan Sirhan than I understood. So I will read this, and then there'll be a second episode, and then a third one. So this is the Sirhan Sirhan timeline read into the record with permission from Jim Garrison Keeler. Introduction. Between September 1966 and June 1968, Sirhan Sirhan, a law-abiding, friendly Palestinian immigrant with dreams of becoming a jockey, underwent a profound psychological metamorphosis. This culminated with Sirhan firing a pistol at Robert F. Kennedy in the Ambassador Hotel on June 4, 1968. On April 17th, 1969, he was found guilty of assault with a deadly weapon with intent to commit murder. He was sentenced to death, but in 1972, this sentence was commuted to life in prison. The, quote, lone nut, unquote, narrative that the mainstream media loved so much was cemented at Sirhan's trial and aided by psychiatrists, including defense psychiatrist Bernard Diamond, who testified in court that Sirhan had programmed himself to kill Kennedy without remembering it. This timeline attempts to answer some simple questions about Sirhan Sirhan and Kennedy's assassination. One, what happened to Sirhan? Two, when did it happen to him? Three, where did it happen to him? And four, who, if anyone, did this to him? The LAPD's deliberate mishandling and suppression of evidence is well-established and, while important, makes an infuriating research subject. What is more difficult, more murky, and harder to pinpoint is what happened to Sirhan in the years leading up to the assassination namely Sirhan's psychological transformation. I've tried to account for Sirhan's whereabouts for as much time as possible in the years and months leading up to the June of 1968. 
I wanted to know where he was and who was who was around him at all times. I examined the history of the CIA's MKUltra program using declassified documents to see if the CIA was the source of a Manchurian candidate hypnosis programming operation. In the timeline, you will see that the CIA clearly had the means to program someone like Sirhan, who was highly susceptible to hypnosis. If the CIA programmed him to assassinate RFK, and we still do not have enough information about MKUltra or its successor, MK Search, to put Sirhan in the presence of anyone connected to those programs. The people who did this would have to be highly trained, and the many CIA-sponsored academic programs were the only arena in which they could have learned these advanced psychological techniques. However, the CIA's role in this investigation is complicated by Sirhan's two-year involvement with the ancient mystical order Rose Crucis, or Amork, an American branch of the International Rosicrucian Order. This organization appears to have cultist powers of mind control over its members, and many of their practices have disturbing correlations to what happened to Sirhan psychologically. Amork almost certainly had a causal relationship with Sirhan's downward spiral. They were not the innocuous New Age advocates of peace and spirituality that they were made out to be during Sirhan's trial. In September 1966, Sirhan had a horse riding accident in Norco, California, and his personality changed dramatically. Friends and relatives described his personality before the accident as polite, upbeat, and friendly, and described him as a changed man afterwards. He became nervous, depressed, irritable, prone to outbursts, and further reliant on mysticism. He showed some of these traits as soon as he arrived at the emergency room the day of the accident. Before Kennedy declared his candidacy on March 16, 1968, Sirhan's whereabouts are partially accounted for. The spring and summer of 1967 finds him unemployed. And aside from sparse doctor's visits, we don't know what he was doing between January and September. He was apparently living at his mother's home in Pasadena, looking for jobs and seeing friends who noticed a sharp change in his personality since the accident. There's evidence of a mysterious trip to San Francisco in March of 67. After Kennedy entered the Democratic Party's primary election on March 16th of 1968, Sirhan left few traces of his whereabouts, but we do know that he became obsessed with the candidate. He was seen by multiple people at Kennedy's campaign events, even by one person in Turlock, California, 300 miles north of Sirhan's home in Pasadena, where Kennedy was touring the San Joaquin Valley. He was seen buying ammunition, shooting a gun at firing ranges, and quite simply stalking Kennedy. At times, he was seen accompanied by a man and a woman, one woman or two men, and none of these people have been identified. Sirhan later had memories of being at a gun range with a man who was teaching him how to shoot at human organs. Sirhan, who remembers many other details of his life, remembers almost nothing about how or why he decided to assassinate Senator Kennedy. The evidence in this timeline suggests at least one highly skilled programmer who caused Sirhan to fire a gun at RFK on June 4th and then disappeared. A puppet master in the shadows, if you will. This programmer must have been familiar with the Rosicrucian teaching Sirhan had been learning, was possibly using that organization to gain access to Sirhan, or to single him out as a candidate for their operations. This book will show that catastrophic damage was inflicted on Sirhan's mind, and that it must have been done to him by well-trained predators, whose goal was to prevent Kennedy from becoming president. Sirhan's desire to kill Kennedy is inexplicable without the existence of a programmer. He could not have accidentally programmed himself, and he never consciously decided to kill Kennedy. The idea that he was enraged by Kennedy's support for Israel was embedded in his mind while under hypnosis, by his own defense team during the trial, and he has dutifully repeated it ever since. 
While his amorc teachings deeply influenced him, it is unlikely that he hypnotized himself into an assassination plot and utterly forgot that he had done so. He remembered many aspects of his life very clearly before, during, and after the assassination. The point is that at some time he made a decision to shoot his gun at Kennedy. He drove to the Ambassador Hotel that night, and he brought his revolver into the pantry and waited for the senator. But to this day, he has no memory of making this, this decision. He had a deep-rooted hatred for Zionists based on childhood experiences. Experiences, He had no such antipathy for Kennedy, and the origins of Sirhan's sudden hatred of Kennedy are murky. As strange as it sounds and as impossible as it may seem, it is a scientific fact based on Los Angeles County Coroner Thomas Noguchi's autopsy of Kennedy that the fatal shots were fired from directly behind Kennedy. One bullet entered Kennedy's skull right behind the ear, traveling upward from right to left, leaving only fragments in the head. Another bullet entered Kennedy's right armpit and exited his body, traveling upward from right to left. The third bullet entered just below this wound and did not exit the body. The gun that fired the fatal shot was an inch away from Kennedy's head. Sirhan was never standing closer than two feet to Kennedy, and the two were facing each other while the shots were fired. Furthermore, we know from forensic audio analyst Philip Van Prague's analysis of Polish reporter Stanislaw Przinski's audio recording of the assassination that at least 13 bullets were fired that night. Sirhan's Ivor Johnson Cadet 22 revolver only held eight bullets. And as Lisa Peace discusses in depth in a lie too big to fail, bullet holes in the door frames in the pantry confirmed a second shooter. Because of all this, we know that a second shooter fired the fatal shots from behind Senator Kennedy and then escaped. So we must establish how Sirhan was convinced to go to the Ambassador Hotel and fire his gun at Kennedy so that he could take the blame. In order to do that, we need to trace Sirhan's steps in the years leading up to the night of June 4th, 1968. The timeline is not meant to be an exhaustive look at the LAPD's investigation of the assassination, the ballistics evidence, the trial, the deep state's motives for assassinating Kennedy, or the many other topics involved in this narrative. It merely, merely aims to account for Sirhan's tra transformation and to answer the question, what, where, when, and how. I've included events from his childhood in Jerusalem because it is impossible to understand Sirhan without some understanding of the trauma he experienced there. My source material is from maryferrell.org the Special Unit L Senator LAPD Collection, the FBI's Los Angeles Field Office Files, the transcripts of Sirhan's trial, Sirhan's appeal documents, the 1992 request to the grand jury, Lawrence Teeter's petition for writ of habeas corpus, the Sirhan-Sirhan court documents related to his appeals, Sirhan's parole hearings, and the mis miscellaneous RFK assassination documents. The MKUltra material is from theblackvault.com where all existing MKUltra documents are archived, supposedly, and have been released under the Freedom of Information Act. The timeline. March 19, 1944. Sirhan is born in Jerusalem. The Sirhan family lives on St. Paul Street, on the dividing line between the Arab and Palestinian and Zionist neighborhoods. A barbed wire fence separates two neighborhood, the two neighborhoods. Sirhan will later tell the NBC News that he remembers violence itself, sir. Just war, bloodshed, fighting, sounds of bombs and enough to frighten a young child. 1947. During the Arab-Israeli War, Sirhan is at the Damascus Gate with his father when a bomb falls and causes mass bloodshed. Sirhan stays in bed for two days and won't leave the house for two weeks afterward. Around this time, a dynamite blast goes off in the neighborhood, which blows up a British soldier. The Jews are trying to force the British out of the country. The next day, Sirhan finds the leg of the soldier and knows that it was a soldier from the kind of shoe on the foot. 
April 1948, Sirhan witnesses a truck full of naked, bleeding Arabic women being paraded through the neighborhood. These women are victims of the Deir Yassin massacre. Jewish soldiers are showing off these women, saying to the residents, look what we can do, and laughing. As Sirhan described in his trial, these 250-some people, women and children, sir, were slaughtered in cold blood by the Jews, the Zionists, and by the military guards in the Haganah, and they were dumped into wells, and some of the women, sir, were taken on a truck and paraded to the city to frighten the remaining villagers that refused to be evicted in order to push them out of their homes once and for all in order for the Zionists to take over. May 1948, Sirhan finds a man stuck in the barbed wire fence by his house. On closer inspection, he sees that the man has been shot and killed. 1948, Sirhan's family escapes from their home on, the hands, on their hands and knees to avoid the bombs and the shooting because of the terrorism of the Zionists forced them to leave their home. They moved into a convent with many other families. They sleep on the floor since there are no mattresses or blankets. Then the family moves to the camp of the refugees in the Jewish quarter of Jerusalem. They live in a 900-year-old building that is cracked and falling apart from the bombing. They will live in this building until 1956, when they emigrate to the United States. There's one toilet for the 11 families who live here. They get their drinking water from a cistern, where there are sometimes dead bodies floating. At one point, Sirhan goes to get water from the well, and he finds a human arm in the water bucket. There's no heat in this building, and they are very often cold. They get very little food from the United Nations and are often hungry. 1949-50. Sirhan begins kindergarten at the Lutheran World Federation School in the old city of Jerusalem. 1952, the CIA's Technical Services Division creates the MKUltra program and places the Caltech-educated chemist, Sidney Gottlieb, in charge of the program. The following are some of the MKUltra projects studying the manipulation of human behavior. The majority of this research takes place at university medical schools. Subproject 49, inaugurated in 1952, directly concerns hypnosis and mind control. Subproject 5 also concerns hypnosis, trance, and su suggestibility. Subproject 51B studies plants and fungi of pharmacological interest and their effects on the central nervous system. This program lasts from 1956 to at least 1963. Subproject 52 studies chemical and physical manipulants as late as 1964. Their purpose is to provide a consulting service on chemical problems and to procure chemicals as needed. Subproject 54 study way, studies ways of inducing a concussion on a person without advanced warning or physical harm so that a subject would have immediate and complete amnesia and the device could be used over and over again. Possible methods include sound waves and gas. Subproject 56 involves studying alcohol and the way animals and humans metabolize it. Specifically, if there is a way to immediately make someone sober after consuming alcohol. Subproject 57 studies sleep and insomnia and the effects of insomnia on the brain and the effects of various drugs and chemicals on sleep. Subproject 60 studies the difference in changes in human behavior brought by, about by stress and changes in behavior brought about by the loss of cerebral tissue. Tests are done on mental patients. Subproject 63 mysteriously studies social drinking, psychochemicals, and the manipulation of human behavior. Subproject 48 studies the motivations of people who choose to defect and change loyalties from their native country to another. It attempts to detect, predict, and target those individuals. Subproject 68 studies the effects on human behavior of the repetition of verbal signals. They study the effects of predetermined signals on physiological functions and patterns of behavior. This is called psychic driving. The intention is to give cues that will induce a pattern of behavior 
on a patient. This is remarkably similar to what Harvard Medical School professor of psychology, Dr. Daniel Brown, claims happened to Sirhan. Brown interviewed Sirhan for 60 hours between 2008 and 2010. In subproject 68, this involves putting the patient in partial sensory deprivation and giving them intensive repetition of verbal signals 16 hours a day for six or seven days in a row. After this, the patient will be kept in a continuous sleep for seven to 10 days. The intention is to create lasting changes in the subject's behavior. Subproject 70's purpose is to conduct research to define mechanisms involved in involuntary sleep and related unconscious states. The agency wants tools to quickly make someone unconscious or helpless and immobile. In 1973, under orders from CAA Director Richard Helms, all documents related to MKUltra will be destroyed. Some 20,000 documents are accidentally saved and will be released later under the Freedom of Information Act. Because of this, many specifics of MKUltra experiments, locations, and test subjects in the subsequent MK search program will be lost. One research proposal, undated, entitled Studies in the Military Application of Hypnotism, appears in the MKUltra files. It outlines a very similar scenario to what allegedly happened to Sirhan. Quote, Hypnotism is now a recognized branch of the science of psychology operating under known laws producing known phenomena. The proposals we are about to make can be verified by means of the scientific method. In deep hypnotism or somnambulism, the subject has complete amnesia. He remembers nothing of what has happened. One out of every five persons can reach this depth in the hypnotic trance. With this subject, we can remove from him all knowledge of ever having been hypnotized and make it impossible for anyone else to hypnotize him except a person who has been designated by the hypnotist. It is our contention that a long and involved message given to a subject could be recovered from the unconscious mind only by one specific operator who alone would be able to hypnotize the subject and recover the secret message. In the waking state, the subject would have no knowledge of this message. He would deny his ever having been hypnotized and the second hypnotist would only be the person able to rehypnotize him. He would go to the second operator as a result of the post-hypnotic suggestion of an ordinary military transfer. He would not talk because he has nothing to talk about. Furthermore, it is our contention that alcohol, drugs, and or physical duress would not be successful in recovering this message. It is not hard to imagine a hypnotist programming not just such a message, but a certain action to be provoked by specific cues into a very receptive victim who in his waking state will not remember the programming itself or what he was programmed to do. 1954-55, Cornell psychology professors M.E. Bitterman and F.L. Marcuse prepare a paper for the MKUltra program outlining possibilities for guaranteeing amnesia in a subject. In a section titled Conditioning and Deconditioning, the authors write, quote, Roughly stated, the, this training teaches the subject to respond to a signal or a symbol in the same manner as he would respond to the stimulus for which the symbol stands. Classically, Pavlov's dog's mouth waters when he hears the bell that goes with the food, without the food. Jones learns to respond to stimuli intended for Smith, although he were that Smith. He has been conditioned to Smith, deconditioned to Jones. Such trainings are integrated on all levels, conscious and subconscious. Hypnosis can assist in establishing the desired conditioned responses. ACR conditioned response is meant to stick. It can be interfered with or abolished by new training in another direction or back to the earlier state. This situation corresponds closely to what Sirhan were later tells Dr. Brown about the night of the shooting. 
paper goes on to discuss dozens of chemicals and drugs which might be applied to guarantee amnesia and obedience in a subject. The paper also contains a section on unwitting subjects. The problem of how to affect control of a subject by the use of hypnosis or chemicals or a combination thereof without the subject being aware that he is being approached is one of the most interesting and complex problems studied by the artichoke group. Methods include narco interrogation and control, chemicals, odorless gases, aerosols, dusts, shock therapy, and most interestingly, medical treatment for illness or accident. Sirhan may have been subjected to this after his accident at the horse ranch in 1966. The authors state that at the present time, the use of a carefully laid on medical cover to obtain either a narco interrogation or a narco hypnotic interrogation appears to be the best weapon presently available. It is not necessary to go into detail as to how this is done, but experience indicates it is our best technique. The authors continue, quote, Ideally, control of the subject obtained without his knowledge or consent and followed by total amnesia is the goal, but at the present time, this appears impossible. Much research and experimentation is necessary to achieve these ends, and as stated above, for the present, at least a smooth, carefully designed medical cover appears the best approach. This is precisely the Manchurian candidate scenario alleged by Dr. Brown, and it should be noted that the authors of this particular paper are writing in 1954. Given the secrecy of the MK Ultra program, it is hard to know what advancements could have been made by 1966. Sirhan may not have been completely unwilling to take part in an assassination, however. It is feasible for a controller to channel Sirhan's rage against Zionists into a rage against RFK. We see this connection between RFK and Zionism, however tenuous, being made in Sirhan's notebook after Kennedy declares his candidacy in 1968. Indeed, the strangeness of Sirhan's rage against RFK and his lack of memory of its origin. According to prosecutors, his hatred of RFK stems from one TV special and several newspaper articles found in his pocket the night of the assassination. It makes us wonder if his rage against Jews, which is not surprising given his childhood experiences, was channeled by an outside controller into the seemingly random hatred of Kennedy. The paper contains a section entitled, entitled Prediction of Hypnotizability which outlines some of the traits of people highly susceptible to hypnosis, gladly yielding to the influence of leaders, seeking the company of friendly persons and endeavoring to please them, lowered skin resistance, which sounds like the skin test given to Sirhan at the Rosicrucian meeting he will attend just a week before the assassination. In Judith Pintar and Stephen J. Lynn's Hypnosis, A Brief History, the authors explain some of the background to our current understanding of hypnosis. After World War II, academia split into two camps regarding the causes of hypnosis. Clark Hole pioneered the non-state theory, which argued that a pa patient under hypnosis does not go into an altered state of consciousness, but merely responds to social conditioning according to his previous expectations and understanding of hypnosis. This non-state theory seeks to explain the experience of hypnosis based upon cognitive functions and social conditioning and denies that a true trance state is the cause. Of hypnosis. On the other hand, Robert W. White argued in, in a 1941 paper that people under hypnosis undergo a trance state. Ernest Hilgard and other researchers at Stanford further, furthered this theory by hypothesizing that the human mind consists of an executive ego which directs most of its conscious functions and several sus subsystems that carry out the work of the mind with little interference from this executive ego. 
This executive ego, while under hypnosis, is divided into two subsets, separated by an amnesic barrier, so that the patient can function cognitively without interference from the conscious mind. This explains much of the dissociation that we see in hypnosis. This state theory has evolved in many different directions since mid-century period and has many advocates. Non-state theorists, beginning with the work of Theodore Sarbin in 1950, argued that dissociation does occur during hypnosis, but does not cause the behavior that we witness in a patient under hypnosis. What we see, according to this theory, is a patient taking a role that they are familiar with based on their personality, personal familiarity with the idea of hypnosis, and this role is encouraged and suggested by the hypnotizer. While dissociation can occur in this process, it doesn't always occur, and some patients even have a hidden observer, according to some theorists. This is a part of the brain that, while inactive, is able to observe what is happening consciously and is able to make its presence known. This theory has also a long and vibrant evolution in academia, and both state and non-state theories have converged in some ways. An important development has also been the trait debate. According to Pintar and Lynn, there are three separate positions regarding an individual's hypnotizability. Anyone can be hypnotized regardless of personality traits. Two, there are some common traits to hypnotizable people, but these alone cannot predict who can or cannot be hypnotized. And three, hypnotizability cannot be taught, and one must have to have a natural aptitude for hypnosis in order to respond to cognitively complex suggestions. What is interesting about Sirhan's case is that both state and non-state theories can account for him being hypnotized. Either he went into a trance state and suffered total amnesia during his programming, or his years of immersion into occult teachings prepared him to take on the role of that his hypnotizer suggested to him, and that dissociation was merely one effect of his basic willingness to be hypnotized. Most importantly, in addition to the MK Ultra research, the dominant strains of academic theory regarding hypnosis can both account for a hypnosis scenario or Sirhan. What is strikingly absent from the history of hypnosis is the idea that someone can enter a dissociative state and hypnotize himself, suffering total amnesia in the process. Nearly all hypnosis scenarios involve the hypnotist, who is highly trained. Sirhan, with no psychiatric education, would have no idea how to hypnotize himself, even with his immersion in Rosicrucian teachings. 1954. Sirhan witnesses a local shopkeeper getting blown up by a bomb and is severely traumatized. Interestingly, in his trial, Sirhan remembers his traumatic childhood experiences quite well, but has no memory of the trance writing in his notebook or the assassination of Kennedy. May 5th, 1955, a 30-page MKUltra memorandum entitled Hypnotism and Covert Operations is sent from the chief of the technical branch of the chief of the security research staff under a section titled Post-Hypnotic Suggestion, the authors have written, quote, Let us suppose that a good hypnotic subject has entered the deepest state of hypnosis. If the operator then suggests, after I awaken you, you will have no recollection of what has occurred. Furthermore, exactly one hour after you are awakened, you will go to the nearest telephone and dial any number. To whomever answers, you will say any message. In all likelihood, the subject will do just that. And extraordinarily enough, within one a minute or two of one hour. This is a post-hypnotic suggestion. If the subject, after awakening, remembers or is told that he has been given a post-hypnotic suggestion, what it is and when it will become operative, he will still experience the greatest difficulty in resisting it. Almost the only way in which he can obtain release from an almost intolerable feeling of discomfort 
is to carry out the post-hypnotic suggestion as given him, or alternatively, have the suggestions removed under hypnosis. For what has been created is very similar to, if not identical, with a compulsion neurosis. The authors go on to state that post-hypnotic suggestions reiterated during several sections, sessions of hypnosis have been known to endure for years. Knowing this, we can see how a skilled hypnotist would not need that much time with Sirhan between March 16th and June 4th. Only several sessions would be needed in order to cause him to seek out Kennedy at the Ambassador Hotel on June 4th, where he was guaranteed to be that night. Drink some alcohol, obey the commands of a, the girl with the polka dot dress, and to enter a trance state in which he believes he is firing at a gun range. According to the documentation above, this is well-established knowledge as early as 1955. It is not far-fetched to imagine this happening to Sirhan in 1968. In fact, it is the only scenario that adequately explains what happened. The authors go on to discuss the question of whether a person in hypnosis will violate his own moral code. But suppose, quote, but suppose that while under hypnosis, a subject is told that a loved one's life is in danger from a maniac, and the only means of rescue is to shoot a person designated as the maniac. Three expert practitioners, two from university and the agency consultant quoted above, say that there is no doubt on the basis of their experience that under such circumstances murder could be attempted. The only requirement is that the proposal be put in a form and manner acceptable to the subject. Most modern authorities feel that a subject will carry out any suggestion which he can rationalize within the framework of his moral code. Currently, there is a murder trial in redacted in which the murderer has been judged to have been under hypnosis at the time of the crime. He has been retried, released, and the hypnotist tried and convicted. The case is under appeal. The comment of three knowledgeable informants was that the hypnotist must have been a rank amateur to have been found out, since any experienced operator would have known how to suggest away the fact that he had arranged the crime, unquote. As we will see, Sirhan's hatred of Zionists will be converted into a hatred of RFK. This fits into Sirhan's moral code quite easily. His childhood traumas were easily manipulated, and his blind rage toward is towards Israel was a valuable tool for whoever hypnotized him. We also see here a warning to anyone who would attempt this. Lack of skill in programming will reveal the presence and the culpability of the programmer. We see this to some degree in the Charles Manson trial, in which Vincent Bugliosi was able to show that Manson was guilty despite never actually killing anyone. The paper goes on to describe ways of inducing an unwilling or unwitting subject into the hypnotic state. A medical examination, an electroencephalograph test, electrocardiogram test, vitamins, injections, etc. These methods could be used to inject drugs into the subject. After Sirhan's riding, horse riding accident in September 1966, all these things were done to him during multiple hospital visits. It was at this time when he underwent the personality change that his friends and family noticed. Dr. Brown believes Sirhan's accident was faked and prearranged. Given the memo above, this is not far-fetched. Someone could have convinced Sirhan under hypnosis that he would get a lot of money in workers' compensation if he had a, quote, accident, unquote, at work. Indeed, we will see Sirhan obsessing over his insurance payout later. The memo refers to one of the foremost U.S. laboratory experimenters with hypnosis who successfully completed an experiment on a college campus in 1939. This experimenter hypnotized an atheist to believe to become a devout Christian for two weeks, after which he was restored to his former atheism by the hypnotist. There is no way of knowing how long the religious conversion would have lasted, 
but if circumstances reinforce the conversion, it might be sustainable for the long term. The memo recommends more field research to find out different ways of inducing hypnosis in unwilling subjects. Since Sirhan was interested in mysticism and hypnosis anyway, it would have been quite easy to convince him to undergo hypnosis. 1956, after the Suez Crisis and the termination of the hostilities, Sirhan's family decides to emigrate to the United States and apply for refugee status. January 12, 1957, Sirhan and his family enter the United States in New York and apply for immigrant visas to, as refugees from Palestine, coming from Amman, Jordan. The family is sponsored by Haldor Lilanas. Sirhan's brothers Adele and Munir and sister Aida arrive while brothers Saeed and Sharif stay in Jordan, arriving in 1960. Sirhan's father, Bashar, will live primarily in New York until his final departure from America in 1966 when he returns to Jordan permanently. 1959-1960, Sirhan attends Elliott Junior High School in Pasadena. Sirhan, being the only non-white person in the school, is a loner and is very shy, but is obedient and tractable. Sirhan seems to adopt an attitude of superiority over other students. April 1961, from John Marks, The Search for the Manchurian Candidate. Quote, the CIA's Office of Research and Development, headed by Dr. Stephen Aldrich, successfully plants electrodes into dogs and controls their behavior. This experimentation is designed to be applied to humans in order to guide a person to commit an assassination. At this time, the CIA is also working on creating amnesia and implanting false memories in patients. They are doing this at the Edgewood Chemical Laboratory in Maryland and at least one American penal institution. February 6, 1962, from FOA Documents. A proposal for a continuation of MKUltra subproject 45 is submitted to the CIA's Technical Services Division, or TSD. This project involves the creation of reliable research tools for study of stress phenomena in animals and man, with the end view of understanding these phenomena to the extent that practical applications can be realized in interpreting and controlling human behavior. Another goal includes the production and study of new chemical and physical agents of significance in connection with the stress reactions. Included in this is a focus on developing pharmaceuticals or chemicals which would produce a sleeping effect or knockout effect on a human or animal. In the proposal, it is claimed that, claimed that considerable progress has been made and more progress is expected. In the 1960 proposal, it is mentioned that testing has been done on advanced ca cancer patients. In the 1959 proposal, contains a plan to develop materials and techniques to produce the maximum amount of physical and emotional stress on human beings. March 1962. The federal government donates part of their naval hospital in Norco, California, to the state of California. This facility becomes the first state-run narcotics rehabilitation center in the nation. During and after the horse riding accident, that will cause such a dramatic change in Surin's personality. He will live within walking distance of this facility. Directly attached to the hospital is the Navy's Naval Sea Systems Command Facility, which does rocket development and testing. Many of the CIA's MKUltra experiments will be coordinated with the Navy's Office of Naval Research. While no records exist of CIA involvement at the California Rehabilitation Center or the Naval facility at this time, drug addicts were very common subjects in the CIA's projects, and this would be an ideal place for someone to experiment on Suron. Even before these programmers knew of Kennedy's candidacy or had any tactical use for Sirhan as a Manchurian candidate, they could have studied him for research purposes in a confidential government-sponsored project. 
September 5th, 62, the Sirhans buy a house at 696 East Howard Street in Pasadena for $11,500. November 5th, 1962, MK Ultra Subproject 46 is completed. This has been in operation since, since 1955, and its goal has been to study the effects of LSD on the nervous system. <clears throat> March 2463, MKUltra Subproject 47 is extended for one more year. It has been in operation since March 1955, and its purpose is for pharmacological and clinical testing on animals and human volunteers of drugs altering behavior. Testing takes place at the New Jersey Neuropsychiatric Institute under the guidance of Carl Pfeiffer, MD. They are using volunteers from the New Jersey State Reformatory at Bordentown. They are testing the effects of LSD and many other mind-altering substances on behavior. Pfeiffer previously carried out this testing at Emory University in Atlanta. One document from 1957-58 describes tests carried out on inmates in a federal prison in Atlanta. Subjects are given LSD orally and interviewed after a three-hour period about their experiences. After a 24-hour period, subjects prepare a written statement about the experience. June 13, 63, Sirhan graduates from John Muir High School in Pasadena. He has completed the three-year California Cadet Corps program. This is a military science course, which involves range practice, basic training, first aid, camouflage, map reading, military history, and related subjects. This program is run through the California State Adjutant General. Sirhan is not on the rifle team and does not receive gun training. Fall 1963, Sirhan takes courses at Pasadena City College, physical education, ballroom dancing, health education, English 123, intermediate German, elementary Russian, History 1A, European History to 1648, and Basic Communication 1. He gets several Ds and F and a C. He will take classes for the next two years before leaving without taking a degree. According to the LA Times, Sirhan is active in the organization of Arab students while he is a student at PCC. This is according to Dr. Mohammed Mehdi, Secretary for the Action Committee for American Arab Relations. In the LA Times article, Mehdi refers to Sirhan as an Arab nationalist. This, the organization of Arab students was heavily supported by the American Friends of the Middle East, which was funded and managed by the CIA. So here we have Sirhan active in a CIA-sponsored student organization as early as 1963 or 64. The question is, how did Dr. Mehdi know about Sirhan's involvement in this program? In an article for the LA Times from January 5, 1969, background of Sirhan reveals confused man, we find corroboration that Sirhan was a member of OAS from his late teens into college. A Jordanian named Sam Farage, who had known the Sirhan family in Jerusalem, is quoted as saying he saw Sirhan with his brothers frequently at OAS meetings and Sirhan was an ardent Arab nationalist. Regarding the OAS's parent organization, the American Friends of the Middle East, their report from 1963-64 explains that they are a Washington, D.C.-based private nonprofit organization committed to furthering better communication and understanding between the peoples of the Middle East and North Africa and the United States, and that the organization renders specific services in the fields of education, training, and information research services and cultural exchange. They have offices in Chicago, New York, and San Francisco, and in various cities throughout the Middle East. The overall goal of AFME is to make developments within the Middle East more understandable to Americans and to adapt American values and concepts to changing requirements of the Middle East. One of their major focuses is education. They provide scholarships and guidance for Middle Eastern students enrolled in American colleges. 
Their support for the organization of Arab students would have fallen under the swing of AFME. But most strikingly, in the AFME's report, we see that on the board of directors is none other than its co-founder, Kermit Roosevelt, the CIA agent who infamously helped overflow, overthrow the government of Mohammed Mossadegh in the Iranian coup of 1953. Regarding the CIA's support for AFME, I will now reprint a 1967 article from the Jewish Telegraph Agency in full. Quote, Congressman William Fitz Ryan and Benjamin Rosenthal, both New York Democrats, this weekend condemned the support of an anti-Israel organization by the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency. The congressman cited authoritative reports to the effect that the CIA has financed the American Friends of the Middle East, a pro-Arab, anti-Israel propaganda front. They called for an investigation by President Johnson. Mr. Ryan and Mr. Rosenthal said the CIA undermines the administration policy of friendship towards Israel by secretly funding the AFME. They cited AFME's attacks on Israel and propaganda issued by Elmo Hutchison, AFME's former Middle East director. They pointed out that the AFME helps finance and guides an organization that created the Organization of Arab Students. The group spreads anti-Israel and sometimes anti-Jewish propaganda at over 100 American colleges and universities by Arab students. The Arab student activity is supported by the Arab League in Cairo which sends out the propaganda lines to be followed. The CIA apparently has financed the anti-Israel propaganda in an effort to woo young Arabs away from communism. The two congressmen said the CIA's covert domestic activities are totally inconsistent with the, the most basic principles of democratic government. We cannot afford to allow a government agency to act on the best interest of the nation. They suggest that the administration immediately terminate CAA meddling on the domestic scene and urged a watchdog committee composed of seven members of the Senate and seven members of the House to oversee CIA operations. AFME took credit publicly for organizing the Arab students. On a number of occasions, AFME petitioned Congress to take anti-Israel positions. AFME also opposed measures designed to relieve the plight of Soviet Jewry. Among the leaders of AFME have been such former State Department officials as Harold B. Minor, who served in the State Department's Near Eastern Division. Charges were made in 1963 in testimony before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee that $4 million was paid by the United States government to finance AFME. The testimony was offered by Bushrod Howard Jr., a representative of the Royalist Yemen government. The State Department denied the charges. It emerged later that AFME's expenditures in excess of $1 million a year for a number of years were subsidized through various conduits by the CIA. Most of the AFME funds were spent to bring Arab students to the United States, whose main activity turned out to be anti-Israel propaganda. Instead of waging an anti-communist campaign, such students generally threatened the Near East that the Near East would go communist unless the United States repudiated, repudiated Israel. Was Sirhan involved in a CIA-led anti-communist student movement four or five years before the assassination? Was this how he came under the auspices of the CIA? As we will see in the five years leading up to the assassination, Sirhan will be seen repeatedly with groups of Arabic friends, some of them who are quite politically active. And crucially, in the few months before the assassination, as he is becoming more obsessed with Kennedy, he will be seen repeatedly with unidentified Arabic men. Can any of these men be affiliated with the Organization of Arab Students, or AFME? July 26, 63. 
A report prepared for this director of central intelligence finds that since 1953, the MK Ultra program run by CIA's Technical Services Division has initiated 144 projects related to the control of human behavior, and that 25 of these projects remain in existence at the present time, while a number of others are in various, various stages of termination. 1964. At some point in 1964, Sirhan buys a used pink and white DeSoto car for $150. January 31st, 1964, Sirhan closes the only bank account he will ever have with a balance of $20.30 of accumulated interest. According to his mother, he will simply keep all his money in cash after this. February 64 to August 64, Sirhan works as a gardener at Theodore von Karman's estate in Pasadena, working under caretaker William Beveridge. Von Karman was a well-known scientist at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, or JPL. March 30th, 1964, Sirhan gets a job as a gas station attendant at Elite Motor Service in Pasadena. According to his boss, Clarence Copping, Sirhan works the 4 p.m. to 3 a.m. shift, and he is an excellent employee. May 16, 1964, Sirhan returns several books to the Pasadena Library. Short History of the Near East by Harry Ellis, Heritage of the Desert by Sidney M. Fisher in Balkan Peninsula. He is fined $2.56 for the late books. On the back of his fine slip is written, Accident not working, insurance a few months ago. June 1964, the CIA's mind control program, MKUltra, which has been in operation since, operation since 1953, is converted to a new program known as MK Search. It, like MKUltra, is run by Sidney Gottlieb. They will use various chemicals and drugs on prisoners and paid volunteers doing experiments on the effects of various substances on the brain. September 28th, 64, Sirhan ends his job at Elite Motor Service and begins working at Richfield Gas Station in Pasadena. He is hired by the station's owner, Jack Davis, who says Sirhan is an excellent employee but has no friends to speak of. According to Davis, Sirhan is already betting on horses at this time before his employment at Santa Anita as a horse walker. He is, in fact, a heavy better, spending a large portion of his earnings on the horses. 1964, at PCC, Sirhan takes reading and composition, introduction to physiology and cultural anthropology. He gets D's and C's. 1964-65, Sirhan takes golf, D, introduction to Russia, and C, introductory biology, D, and other classes. 65, Sirhan's father, Bashar, returns to his hometown near Ramallah, Israel, and will not return to America. According to one LAPD source, Sirhan meets friend, Tom Rathke in 1965 while working for Gordon Bauscher at the Yellow King Ranch in Chino, but in other sources they do not meet until they work together in Corona in 1966. In both sources, Rathke and Sirhan discuss the differences between the Theosophical Society to which Rathke belongs and the Rosicrucians. The LAPD on the whole portrays the Amork as an innocuous society geared towards spirituality, the Brotherhood of Man, and other peaceful endeavors. March 20th, 1965, Sirhan's sister Aida dies of leukemia. Shortly after this, Sirhan leaves the home and his mother does not know his whereabouts for some time. She believes he is living with a group of boys and girls in Pasadena and she is unaware of his activities. While he is working at a gas station until June, the entire spring and summer of 1965 is a mysterious period when Sirhan could have been with any group of people doing anything, presumably in the Los Angeles area. March 23rd, 65, Aida Sirhan is buried at Forest Lawn Cemetery in Glendale. 
May 1865, Sirhan is dismissed from PCC for failing five classes. June 7th, 65, Sirhan ends his job at Richfield Gas Station. August 15, 65, Sirhan starts a job at a Chevron, Chevron station in Pasadena. September 17, 65, Sirhan ends his job at Chevron. October 15, 1965, Sirhan begins working as a hot walker cooling down horses after a race for a horse owner and trainer named Gordon Bowsher at the Santa Anita Racetrack in Arcadia. Sirhan's foreman, John Shear, loans Sirhan riding equipment and books about horses. Here we have the origin of Sirhan's obsession with becoming a jockey. Shear will later recall that Sirhan was a poor rider of horses and fell frequently. One of his co-workers, whose name is redacted, will later remember that Sirhan became incensed when talking about Jews, had a poor disposition to be a jockey, and was recommended to be an exercise boy, and worked at the Los Angeles County Fair in Pomona as a hot walker after the racing, racing season was over at Santa Anita. January 1st, 66. Sirhan applies for a membership in the California Horse Racing Board. He receives a hot walker's license. March 31st, 66. Sirhan quits working at the Santa Anita racetrack. April 7th, 66. Sirhan receives a library fine for $2.56. Summer 1966. German national George Bilecki first meets Sirhan. He sees Sirhan regularly around Pasadena at Shaps, Bar, and Denny's, hanging out with a group of Arabs. Bilecki has a conflict with Sirhan's friend Paul, who owes him $75, which Paul bor borrowed in order to bet on horses at Santa Anita. Paul later threatens Bilecki with a knife when confronted about his debt. May 28th, 66. According to the LAPD, at 7.30 p.m., Sirhan goes to his first meeting of the ancient mystical order, Rose Crucius, at the Society's Ankhnaten Lodge in Pasadena, where he signs his name as a, in the guest register. The Amorca is a society of mystics founded in 1915 by H. Spencer Lewis and headquartered in San Jose, California, also known as the Rosicrucian Order. According to Peter Lavenda, Sinister Voices, Forces, Volume 1, the Amorca is an offshoot of the Societis Rosicruciana in America, itself an offshoot of the British Societis Rosicruciana in Anglia with ties to the 19th century British occult lodge known as the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. These societies claim to have access to ancient occult sources of wisdom. At this meeting, Sirhan participates in an extrasensory perception experiment in which he is blindfolded and told to identify objects simply by touching them. As Lavenda describes, Amorik has a new style of recruiting members by mail and is unique in its use of large magazine ads for correspondence courses on mental telepathy, meditation, and eventually magic. There's no evidence that anyone introduced Sirhan to a morgue, and it is safe to assume that he simply saw an advertisement for the society in a newspaper. At first glance, Sirhan's membership in a, to a morgue may seem innocuous, but the experience of Pierre Freeman, author of Prisoner of San Jose and a morgue unmasked, the hidden mind control techniques of the Rosicrucian order, gives rise to troubling implications about Sirhan's transformation. Freeman goes into great detail describing his 24-year immersion in a morgue and implicates the group as a fraudulent cult that practices mind control on their often vulnerable members. Freeman outlines the many spiritual practices of a morgue, which Sirhan is undoubtedly practicing between May 1966 and the assassination in June 68. It will be worth it to examine these practices and their intended or unintended effects on a practitioner who is eager to make spiritual progress. To begin with, according to the Amorque Digest, the Rosicrucians trace their wisdom teachings 
back to the mythical empire of Atlantis through dynastic Egypt, the Essenes, the Delphic Oracle, the Pythagorean school of classical Greeks, through the Hermetic and Gnostic cults, Neoplatonism, Kabbalah, to Rosicrucianism itself, which began in 1614 with the publication of Fama Fraternitatis, Confessio Fraternitatis, and the Chemical Wedding of Christian Rosenkreutz, which the society claims were probably written by a group of German scholars known as the Tübingen Circle. The Amorque was officially established as an American branch of the International Rosicrucian Order in 1915 by H. Spencer Lewis, a passionate Rosicrucian who had been told in a mystical experience in 1908 to go to France to receive his initiation into the Rosicrucian Order. So the question is, what kinds of materials would Sirhan be receiving as he began his spiritual journey? What would Amorc be doing to his mental state at this time? According to Pierre Freeman, one exercise entitled Section 37 involves the member imagining a future desired scenario in detail, then observing his face in a mirror under candlelight while image imagining this scenario becoming fulfilled. Freeman claims that this exercise involves the seeker attempting to control the universe and his personal destiny quite apart from communion with deity, which I now believe to be the end and purpose of existence. A strange irony of Sirhan's memory loss is the supposed importance of memory in Amorc teachings. Section 39 stresses the importance of subconscious memories in past lives and states we should prioritize the subconscious in our decision-making. Members are encouraged to submit questions and problems prior to sleep in order to receive answers from the subconscious. Section 43 states that headaches other disorders of the head, including vision problems which affected Sirhan after his injury, are often the result of psychological stress, fatigue, or anxiety. Amork provides exercises for, for the relief of these problems. Section 46 provides a fascinating and pertinent protocol for dealing with pain from inflammation, wounds, blows, cuts, burns, etc. This healing process involves hypnosis. According to Freeman, later medical studies substantiated the healing properties of hypnosis, but our concern is the effect of these teachings on Sirhan. The more we dive into the Amorc teachings, the more eerie connections we will notice between these teachings that will and what will eventually happen to Sirhan. Section 53 involves psychic projection or remote viewing, as it is sometimes called. The member goes into a state of meditation and attempts to visualize a scene that he would like to view, apparently anywhere in the world. He will not be able to interact with what is going on, obviously, but the Amorc teachings aim to convince members that they can do this. Section 55 teaches the member how to visualize his own aura in order to evolve spiritually and receive wisdom. Freeman claims that these exercises enforce mind control in several ways. They reinforce the idea that the only Rosicrucian order, only the Rosicrucian order is capable of giving you these extraordinary powers and encourage absolute obedience to their teachings. They use repetition, ritual, and hypnotic triggers. They encourage members to visualize things that are not there, fostering a state of altered reality in which you do not quite know what is real. Another exercise that seems pertinent is the repetition of sounds. We see the repetition of random words and phrases in Sirhan's hypnotic notebook writings as well. In Amorc, the sounds to be repeated include mar, ra, da, meh, and other meaningless sounds. Section 77 involves the ninth degree oath or of allegiance that all members must pledge to Amorc. They involve obedience to the Amorc teachings, pledges of secrecy, responsibility, respect to Amorc leaders, and a pledge not to criticize or question Amorc teachings or the order itself. 
As Freeman asks, what if you find your personality in life undergoing profound changes for the worse and that you are trapped in a cycle of bondage, which you honestly believe is based on mind control? These world words will haunt us as we proceed to Surhan's two-year downward spiral that begins with his employment at Bert Altfelish's ranch in Norco. This was a time in which Surhan's dreams of becoming a jockey, jockey slowly slipped away from him. Perhaps his lack of control drove him to a mork teaching such as Section 83, which promises telekinesis. But Section 93 might be the most disturbing in light of the later allegations that Sirhan was manipulated to kill Kennedy without his knowledge. This practice promises that we can act in such a way that another person will think, speak, and act in accordance with our will without even being aware of it. Amork claims that initiates of the past have influenced emperors, kings, tribunals, and generally speaking, personalities invested with certain political, military, religious, and other types of powers. The teachings advise the student to repeat this process several times until you feel that you are within this person's body, directing all the physical and psychic fun functions. This is strangely what appears to have happened to Sirhand himself. He cleverly, he clearly never learned how to do this to another person. It is hard to learn all this about a mork and not implicate them in Sirhand's final collapse.